Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 180 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to host Stephen Berard, our own Chief Technology Officer here at Momenta. Stephen is a digital industry technical strategist with over 25 years in software architecture, design, and operations with expertise in driving large-scale, highly reliable, distributed cloud and IoT solutions. As chief architect at Schneider Electric, Stephen directed the technical strategy for EcoStructure, Schneider Electric's IoT platform. Prior, Stephen spent seven years as technical program manager at Microsoft on the Windows Core OS team, where he advanced data center power management, drove battery life improvements, and defined the connected standby experience. Stephen, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast. Hi, Ken. It's great to be here. I look forward to an engaging conversation. As well, you know, I always say this, I always like, it's taken so long for us to get together, but you've been with us over three and a half years at Momenta, and there really has been no excuse at this point. And so I'm (laughs) glad I finally got you to participate in this. So as you know, we call this the Digital Thread podcast and very much about your own personal and professional digital thread In other words, the one or more thematic threads that define your digital industry journey. What would you consider to be your digital thread, Stephen? That's a great question. I've always been interested in networking and communications. At the time I did my study in university, the internet that we know today was just starting to come about. I think my first email address was actually a bitnet address, if you remember those days. Around then, TCPIP was really starting to emerge as a de facto standard. And I was really interested in what could be made possible once everything was networked. This is way before uh, we had fiber to the home and video and things on our mobile device. So it was a really interesting time, and I was really intrigued by that. During my studies, I landed an excellent internship where I was introduced to the concept of network management systems. So at the time, this was systems like HP OpenView. And during that, I was managing all these devices, mostly telecom routers and firewalls and other things connected to the network, all centrally, all remotely. And it was really interesting. I was really intrigued by the ability to like configure an IT device in Ireland over our WAN link. And so that was, I think, a really defining moment for me. And that internship ultimately turned into my first professional role where I was technically responsible as a network management engineer for a small fleet of these remote devices. I then transitioned over to software engineering. This was all with APC, one of the first companies I worked at, where instead of just using those and operating those devices, I actually wrote the code behind those. I worked on the agents and the management software for that. At that time, it was all SNMP, which is the Simple Network Management Protocol, which um, ironically is still in use today. And from that, that was really my entry into what we now call IoT. So while others in the industry came from things like SCADA and control systems and other on-premise solutions into the IoT, I came from a bit more of an IT and a data center kind of thing. In the early 2000s, I transitioned, as you mentioned, over to the Windows kernel team, and I worked on a number of initiatives there related to power management and battery life. But again, that thread of managing those things remotely in mass over the network was still there. A lot of the things I worked on there were not SNMP, but were related in terms of using things like group policy to manage them in mass. 
And then ultimately, I ended up at Schneider Electric, where I was an IoT architect. So formal IoT role there. And again, the IoT is about connecting and communicating to these devices. So I think for me, that thread through everything is that network connectivity and dealing with these things in mass and, and the power of that. So That's an interesting angle to come from in terms of vectors. We always see kind of the convergence of IoT as people who've come from, let's say, an industrial background, think, you know, PLCs, DCS, et cetera, telco, right? So that there certainly speaks to yours as well. And then generally just other forms of engineering, usually involving machine to machine as an example, right? So your vector is certainly one of the strong ones in terms of leading you to IoT. I like the fact you got your start at APC in 95. So you were architecting software for their enterprise management of their data center business line. Many will know that APC is a market leader in power conditioning and management. So think uninterruptible power supplies, if you will. In fact, I see that the product name for your profile was infrastructure at the time. So certainly a precursor to the later work at Schneider Electric, who I believe acquired APC later on. So let me ask, what were some of the early lessons you learned at that intersection of large-scale enterprise deployment and management of critical equipment? Yes, APC coined that term with that stylized X. And so when Schneider Electric acquired APC, they brought that forward into the ecostructure name. They kept that, that same X. So I always enjoyed that because it, it shows some of the roots because I got my career started at, at APC. So it was, it was always nice to see that. Joining APC was interesting. I joined when they were a fairly small company, less than $100 million in sales annually. And then when I finally left 10 years later, they were at about $2 billion in sales. And then a few years later, they were eventually acquired by Schneider Electric. So I get to see that company transition and be part of the organization as it transitioned from a small company to a mid-sized company and from a mid-sized company to a large enterprise company. And so amazing set of lessons that I got to learn through that. One of the things that was really interesting is if you look at how software today is done, Agile development is sort of commonplace. But at that time, that wasn't the case. You couldn't go to the Barnes & Noble and pick up a book on Scrum or Agile development. That just didn't exist. But our team was actually pretty interesting and pretty dynamic. We were a small software team within a large hardware organization, but we had a lot of autonomy and flexibility. So we were able to experiment with things. And I remember getting some early agile white papers and manifestos and stuff that I think were sourced from some of my colleagues on Usenet, if you remember that. And we get to experiment with a lot of that. So we get to do in things like automatic build servers. We did some iterative development, iterative releases. We actually did a shared development. We took over our conference room and, you know, all had that as our shared office. So we got to experiment with that well before these things were commonplace. And so it was really an interesting experience to be part of that early on and really learn about that culture and help shape that and see what worked. So that was tremendously useful. We were also given the freedom to try out new things. One example I'll use here is our team was responsible for software that ran on servers and it was there to monitor the battery system. And if anything were to interrupt power or the battery condition, properly shut down those servers so that data and databases at the time were preserved. And so while that seems straightforward, our product ran across a multitude of platforms, including Netware, if you remember that, NT, and many, many different flavors of Unix. And so the original code base was written in C++, but it became quite convoluted and difficult to maintain. So I was part of the team that was tasked with re-architecting the product. And so that was my first experience at like big scale software re-architecture. The other thing that we tried to do is we said, hey, listen, we have to run across all these platforms. What can we do? What tools can we use to make that easier? So we used this thing that had this wonderful tagline of write once, run anywhere. So if you remember that, as you can guess, that was Java. And so I got early, early exposure to that. So these were very, very early days. We started working out on Java 1.0. 
And 1.1 came out right in the middle of our product to release. So very early on in the Java days. So I got hands-on experience with that. And I get to watch how Java evolved and morphed into what it is today, right? If you look, Java powers some of like tons of the software that we use today, whether it be Netflix or Amazon, large, large, large systems are all built on Java. So it was really unique and interesting to be at the forefront of that way back then. I'm happy to say the code base that we re-architected is actually still used in production today, which is really interesting. I don't think many people can say that their software is still running 20 years later. So so in the end, APC was a great culture. I learned the culture of continuous learning, and that really imprinted on me the type of environment and culture I crave and want to work within. You know, speaking of large enterprise companies, in 2005, you, of course, joined Microsoft, focused on the intersection of power management and core operating system features yet again. What were some of your key initiatives there and wins at the time? Yeah, it's interesting. Microsoft could not have been a more different culture from APC. In fact, I felt like a fish out of water for like almost 18 months. The cultural cadence was so different for me. But ultimately, I had a really successful career. I spent another 10 years at Microsoft and really found my place there and and really enjoyed my time there. I worked on a number of really interesting projects and two key projects I'd highlight and I'm really proud of. The first is enabling power management on Windows Server. At the time, power management features were not enabled by default on Windows servers. A lot of the hardware had those power saving capabilities. Those are technologies that came from the mobile side of the world, but they were not turned on in servers by default. And this is at a time well before virtualization was popular. So you had these servers running at full speed, full power, taking no advantage of power management, but were at super, super low utilization, right? Somewhere below like less than 5%. I can't remember the exact, but I think the average utilization was in the 2 to 3% range. So the amount of energy just wasted and the amount of heat and cooling required was just obscene. And so what we wanted to do, we felt really strongly on the team about energy efficiency and what we could do there. We felt that we should be able to turn this on by default, and that would be the default state, meaning that people would use this in mass and data centers. And it turns out that there was actually a lot of, I would say, cultural inertia around that. There was this thinking that enabling that would somehow decrease the performance of the servers. And so the OEMs competed on how good their servers were, how performant their servers were. So there was a lot of reluctance on the OEM side to enable this by default. So this was a major project. (laughs) I know it sounds simple, turning that on by default, but we really had a lot to overcome in that inertia. And so I worked really closely with the Windows performance team to come up with a set of metrics and measure various different hardware with and without this enabled. I worked with some people from the EPA Energy Star program, Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, Climate Savers Computing Initiative to really build understanding around this, get some real data on this and help really change that mindset. So in the end, we actually were able to get everybody to agree that, yes, we can turn this on. We did some really detailed measurements and found that turning it on did have a negative impact on performance, but that performance was so negligible that it really was unnoticed by many. But on the flip side, we were saving over 18% with the same workload on the same hardware in terms of energy efficiency. And so when you translate that over the number of Windows servers, the amount of energy saved by that was just massive. And so to me, that was one really major project that I'm really proud of at Microsoft. And in the end, I received the Microsoft Environmental Action Award for the work we did on that. The second initiative that I think I'd highlight is, and you mentioned this in the intro earlier, came during the Windows 8 release. Here, we were trying to compete and build a Windows tablet experience that could compete with the iPad. And if you look at the iPads and mobile devices, the power experience is very different than with the PC. You don't shut down your phone when you're done at the end of the day. Like That thing's always on, always connected. And so I worked across various different teams to bring that experience, define what that experience is for Windows, and then bring that experience to life. And in the end, 
That experience was called Connected Standby in Windows 8. It's now been renamed to Modern Standby. That's the new evolution for that. But in essence, it's that mobile experience that you have where you can get emails when your screen is off. Where you don't actually shut down. You know, device is always on, always connected, always reachable. So if you think about things that we're used to now, like taking VoIP calls, such as a call from Teams, the ability for that device to ring, even though it's quote unquote off, requires a lot of magic behind the scenes. And so I helped bring that into existence in the Windows 8 team, worked with a large virtual team, working with folks on the kernel side, on the hardware side, on the firmware side, and as well as with the OEMs and a lot of our partners. So really fortunate to be part of that experience and really change how that is fundamental to what it is, fundamental to how the power experience is today on Windows PCs. If you look, you know, you buy a modern laptop today, the connected standby, modern standby is the default experience you get in there. So it's nice to be able to see that. So. I'd say those are the two key things that I'm really proud of from my days at Microsoft. And when Stephen and many of our teams call isn't functioning as CTO for Momenta, he often will take blame for almost any Microsoft woe we have with the systems that we use. So <laughs> said so you can probably blame a decision I made way back when for that problem. So yeah, when you work a, on it's, the it's, kernel it's team. a useful poster child to have. <laughs> yeah, when you work on the kernel team, when you see an issue like that, you're either the one who made that decision that caused that problem or you know the person who did it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward to Schneider Electric. So you joined them in 2012, ultimately serving as chief architect of their EcoStructure IoT platform. This was an interesting time as each of the major OT players were developing their own platform in the wake of GE's early success with Predix. What were some of the key design considerations for this platform at the time? Yeah, indeed, GE really set the frame of reference for IoT platforms. They invested a lot of money there. There was a lot of marketing and a lot of hubbub around Predix. And Schneider definitely leaned into that and said, hey, we need to build something like that as well. And we're talking 2012, which is, as I look at the calendar now, 10 years ago, that was really early in the IoT platform game. At that time, the services that you know and expect from Google, Amazon, and Microsoft clouds, as well as all the other IoT platforms, that largely didn't exist, right? A lot of that had to be built from scratch. There was no device connectivity service like you have with AWS IoT Core or Azure IoT Hub. And so we had to build a lot of that, and we had to understand what the core features were needed. So our initial goals here, though, were around building those core services pertaining to connectivity, device management, data management, data storage, query, et cetera. The intent was to basically core out that functionality from all the different product teams. So if you look at all the different products and services across Schneider, you can imagine are connected or ultimately will be connected. And if every team is building an MQTT connectivity service and firmware update over the air, et cetera, et cetera, that's just a massive waste of engineering resources. And so the goal of our team was to centralize those core and then allow their lines of business to be able to focus on the things and the value that they deliver to their customers. So the data center folks could build features for data center management and not worry about sending data over MQTT. And so our goal was to deliver those core services, but we didn't just want to deliver them as a, here's a package, you can go run that as part of your solution. We actually delivered those as managed services. So everything that we designed, implemented, we ultimately also operated, managed, and maintained. And so that was a big pivot, a big pivot, especially for a company, an industrial like, like Schneider Electric. That's commonplace for the cloud providers, it's commonplace in SaaS, but for an industrial player that does mostly SCADA on-premise systems, this was a very, very foreign concept. And so we had to not only design a bunch of these things, but also operate them. And it was a really interesting time to be there because to build that organization, to build that sort of know-how within the organization, 
was an immense challenge. And we always got really fast feedback. I remember I was based on the Grenoble site and our support people were just across from me. And I, I, my desk sort of faced their area. And I could always tell when we shipped a bad release because there would be a bunch of grumblings and groanings and they would come over and walk to my desk. And so we had really good fe- fast feedback loop. And so it was a really interesting time to be there. I think some of the other things that we wanted to do in terms of design criteria is we wanted to be portable. At the time, we'd selected Microsoft and Microsoft Azure as our, our cloud partners and the platform that we wanted to build on. But we needed the ability to be able to potentially run on-premise should our customers need that or run on another cloud. Or there are certain situations like, for example, China. The situation in China is a little bit different. We likely need to operate on a local cloud provider there. So we wanted the platform to be portable. So that meant that we had to really design in such a way that we weren't relying too heavily on managed services that were vendor lock-in. Now, at the same time, we also didn't want to re-implement everything ourselves. And so we had to find that really good balance between using managed services, creating good abstractions, and then building things ourselves. And no, that was a delicate balance. And I think we struck a really good balance in the end, but it was a key challenge in the design criteria. So overall, I think it was a really interesting time to work on IoT. And I look back now, I know one of the things that I remember from working in Schneider is I always felt like we were behind. You know, GE was out in front. I thought like, man, we're just so late to this IoT game. Looking back at it in retrospect, I realized just how early we were and how much of a front runner Schneider Electric and Ecostructure were. So it's really great to be part of the experience. It's interesting. I had a conversation this morning with somebody I would consider to be a very strong advocate of edge computing. And we have the same conversation because he was involved very early with some of the telco companies on some of their stuff. And he was discussing how slow this industrial space moves. And in some sense, even though you think you're behind, you actually might be a bit of a pioneer at that point. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Interesting timing. So I know you were saying it was almost 10 years since you've been at Schneider, but You've been at Momenta three and a half years already, which is incredible because time has absolutely flown. Obviously, you serve as our CTO for our venture capital work, as well as supporting a lot of key advisory efforts, mainly buy-side M&A. Tell us a bit about your remit and what have been some of your favorite projects during those three and a half years. Yeah, it's hard to believe it's three and a half years, but as they say, time flies when you're having fun, right? So (laughs) yeah, I originally joined Momenta to be part of the advisory team. The idea was to leverage my experience from Schneider and work on a number of projects to help mostly large industrial companies and equipment manufacturers through that digital transformation journey. There was a lot of lessons I learned in my time at Schneider and during Ecostructure, many of them the hard way. We tried a lot of things and failed and had to pivot and and learn the right way to do things. And that experience was hard won. And so the intent was to leverage that. And I got to be part of a number of really interesting and incredible projects in the advisory team. One of my favorite projects was a large industrial equipment company. And this is a company that literally cast their products out of metal, like metal mechanical devices. And they're sold through the channel with traditional sales and serviced manually, inspected manually. There was no digital connectivity. There was no sort of digitization of that process. And so that project has been an ongoing project for at least two years. And I was part of that early on. And now they're selling their products online. They have connectivity to their products. Their products are monitored. They're even doing predictive analytics for when they should service that equipment or when a potential optimization might setting might need to be changed to improve optimization and things of that nature. So it's really rewarding to see a company kind of go through that process and be there to help them out. And as you mentioned today, I've mostly transitioned over to our ventures team and fill the role of the CTO. Here, I help craft our investment thesis. I really look to identify what technology is coming up, what, what the trends are, what that means to us in industry and what we need to pay attention to and weave that into you know our approach to investment and what our investment thesis is. 
I also do a lot on due diligence side of things as we're looking at new investments. Again, focus mostly on the technology side, but I help figure out like, are these the right characteristics? Does this company have the technology underpinnings to support the kind of business that you're trying to do? So I, I help a lot on that due diligence side. And then I would say that the third thing I do on the, the ventures team is to really help advise our portfolio companies. I sit on the board of several of our investment companies, and so I help them provide advisory services to them as they're going through different challenges and sort of navigating the waters of growth. So It sounds like a great position and at a great company. <laughs> I, I can say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice and it's exciting in a lot of ways too, because you get to see a wide breadth of different things. The boards that I sit on, the companies there could not be more different, right? And so to get that kind of breadth of experience and work with those different companies is really fulfilling. Yeah, I think of Moment often as a perspective platform, right? When you're sitting up elevated and working across a number of different companies, you have visibility into them, and if you will. You get to see trends and see the emergence of trends or in some sense, tag these trends early on, right? I know we've been involved in edge for quite a while because you can't be in OT and not talk about edge because OT is edge by definition, right? But I know in some of the recent work you've done, you've actually coined uh, what I consider a new term and that's hyper-converged edge or HCE. Tell me, what does the term mean and how does it differ from the more widely known hyper-converged infrastructure or HCI? That's a great question. And you look at edge and you're right, it is really where we are in IoT. So if you look at HCI or hyperconverged infrastructure, that's pretty well known. And in many ways, it's fundamentally changed how we've managed IT. I personally believe a similar transition is needed in the IoT or industrial edge. It's tempting to look at HCI and just say, well, we can just scale that down, right? We can take that and put that into this far edge or this IoT edge, and it'll work. And on the surface, it sort of looks that way. But I actually believe that a very different approach is required. And that's where we're looking at the term, and we've coined the term hyperconverged edge or HCE. At this IoT edge, you know, you have a high variety of hardware SKUs. Right? In the data centers and the data closets, there's a very limited set and variety in terms of the hardware there. And the IoT edge side of things, very, very different. There's gateways, they have different CPU architectures, they have different amounts of memory, they're on foreign networks. It's a very, very different environment. And so the types of solutions and the technology to support those is actually very different. That's not to say we're not going to use some of the technologies from HCI, like virtualization and containerization, or even some of the clustering like you see with Kubernetes. It's just that we need to adapt to how the, the features of that platform are to support those kind of scenarios. I can give a couple of examples. If you look at how these devices get installed right in the industrial space, they're generally wired up by electricians, physically put in on a wall or in a ceiling joist somewhere or connected to a factory line and wired up by an electrician. That person generally doesn't understand how to configure an IP address or how to change a firewall rule to make sure that that can communicate back to the cloud. So how you approach developing those solutions so that it can be installed by the electrician requires thinking about that problem space a little different. The sort of the joke that we have when we talk about this is, hey, the pizza delivery guy should be able to plug that in and get it to work. And that's exactly kind of the technology I think that's needed in this space. It's a good example of how a lot of the IT technologies are certainly impacting the OT side. Again, hearkening back to my conversation earlier today, the gentleman talked about virtualization all the way out to the chip effectively, right? And described that is really what uh, HC would be, right? And it's an interesting model. So you mentioned earlier how different the platform 
play was for Schneider at the time and the cultural change and probably business model change they had to go through to really support that. As we think about this, I'll call it kind of new edge or HCE. How do you think it'll affect the established order of technology providers for the OT? And I guess, in other words, who will be the likely winners from your perspective? Ah, That is an excellent question. And if I had a perfect answer to that, I probably could make some really good investments (laughs) and retire early. I think what you're going to see is, or actually what we are seeing and will continue to see, are two common threads here. One is that the cloud providers are really trying to capitalize on the edge. You have the likes of Microsoft and Amazon and Google, Oracle, IBM and others that have a good set of cloud services and cloud platforms and want to extend that to the edge. On the other side, you have the established on-premise players, as we tend to call them, those industrials that have that on-premise hardware or software or both. And they're providing those solutions and they're already at the edge and they want to connect up. If you look at the side of the cloud folks, their desire is to drive everything to the cloud. And so I think in many ways, while they are edge, they're really very cloud-like edge. They're not quite that hardcore edge. If you look at the industrial players and the on-premise solutions, I think what we're going to see is those companies actually the way they're approaching that actually take hold. And that's really what we're looking at with HCE. Now, at the same time, I think they're missing some of that technology that the cloud providers have. And so I think the dynamic you'll see is a number of these established on-premise players, edge players, make a number of strategic acquisitions to bring on the talent and the technology to support that HCE that we're talking about. Obviously, they'll have to be linked with the cloud because obviously a lot of the cloud providers play in the space as well. And many of those industrial players are core partners of those cloud players. But I think ultimately, you're going to see this being driven by those initial on-premise players. But again, they don't have that technology today. And so I think there's a number of interesting startups that are out there, a number of interesting open source projects that they will bring on board and use as a formation for that, as well as the talent and the mindset. So going back to your comment, if you knew who the winners are, you'd invest in them. Knowing who the winners are, I think you're already advising us who to invest in. And I would, of course, advise you have not to share that. So (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, that's why you're front and center to our ventures team. So having listened, of course, to our Digital Thread podcast quite often, you know that in the end, we always like to ask about one's personal inspiration. Stephen, what would you consider to be your personal inspirations? Well, I've always been intrigued by technology, what it can do, where it's going. And quite honestly, the pace and the acceleration you get with technology. If you go back to, you know, I mentioned TCP IP and the internet being an early theme for me, you look at where that is now. You know, we have LinkedIn and Facebook and Netflix and on-demand everything. You know, I have satellite internet from SpaceX and just how fast that technology has moved. And we're seeing that not only in computers and IT, we're seeing this in biotechnology as well and health sciences and electric vehicles and it's transforming everything. So I've always been intrigued by that technology. So I think that's one of the key drivers for me. The other thing that's been a driver for me, and I can't point to a single source or single book, but the whole idea of being a continuous learner, I think something my father said early on was like, hey, you need to get good at learning, not just learn, right? He's like, you're growing up in a world where it's not just about going to learn a skill and then doing that for the rest of your life. You need to continuously learn. And so he instilled that sort of spirit of learning into me. And if you look at themes, I think Satya Nadella, when he came over, took over at Microsoft, really inspired that culture of learning and that experimentation and that try. So that's always been a driver for me. And I think the pairing the technology along with that continuous learning 
leads to a pretty interesting life. And so I've had some great experiences and I have some great opportunities and I think I'm just getting started. <laughs> you know, earlier in the conversation, you talked about how all of this kind of converged to bring you to IoT. I would think conversely that this idea of continuous learning is an absolute needed skill relative to IoT because the very definition of IoT is ethereal. And of course, today includes the cloud, tomorrow the edge, and next day looking at AI ML at the edge, optimization, adaptive behavior, on and on and on, right? It's just, it's a series of learning exercises in some sense. And thus, I would say an absolute needed skill set. So it's good background to have. So Stephen, thank you for sharing this time and these insights with us today. Well, thanks, Ken. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry it's taken us three and a half years to you uh, to get on a podcast, but it's good to be here. Well, it's good to finally be able to have the conversation that we probably should have had a long time ago. But then again, with three and a half years of seasoning to it as well. So this has been Stephen Berard, our own chief technology officer here at Momenta and architect for the hyperconverged edge. Thank you for listening. And please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archive versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.